0: Don't build themselves. What's up and welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. I am a Dream Mason, a performance and mindfulness coach. I work with leaders, creators, and innovators, those brave enough to build their dreams. If you're a high performer looking for an edge with a desire to expand your leadership, generate more money, more time, and feel more fulfilled, working with me will support you in making that life a reality. Now, if you haven't already, please support me and this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube. Follow me, Inspirational Alex, on Instagram, and please share this podcast with a friend. Hey, welcome back to the Dream Mason Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova, and I am here with an author, a speaker, a teacher. I was really impressed as I looked at the, the, the titles and the work that my guest today, Rosanne Liu, has produced. Rosanne, you have written five books or been a part of five books. First is How to Survive Elementary School, which you wrote with your daughter, which is incredible. Um, that's so cool. I've actually always wanted to write a book with my mom. So, uh, and I haven't heard a lot of people doing this. You wrote another book called uh, You Did What Now, which is your memoir. And then your most recent book is Badassery 101. And then you're part of two anthologies Mastering Your Inner Game, which is a number one bestseller, and Phenomenal Women, which comes out this year on Christmas. And you are a speaker, you're a teacher, you focus on helping and teaching people that uh, English is a second language, and f- more so than anything, you just occur as like a woman who says what she wants and goes after it and creates it and doesn't let things get in her way. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, Alex. Great to be here.
0: Uh, is there anything you, you know, want the listeners to know about you know, any of your books you're speaking like right off the bat that you're just like, I need to tell them this. They need to hear this. <laughs>
1: Um, Well, I'm still very excited about Badassery 101. I think it's something um, that everybody, no matter what station in life and what phase of life that they're in, is something that could really help them to self-source that confidence that's within. So as I'm going about promoting the book and and crafting talks around badassery, I I really want people to remember that this uh, self-confidence is within us. And if they make certain things and make the decision to tap into that self-confidence, that they can have it. And once they do, they can do uh, gigantic, great things in their lives. So it's not something that they need to wait for other people to give to them. But uh, I, I love for them to check out the book or come to one of my talks to uh, find out how to self-source this badassery within themselves.
0: How did you become, it's so cool because you're like a self-described and I mean, I I can't disagree with you because you've been a part of five books. It's hard enough to write one and you've been a part of five. So how do you become like the confidence master?
1: I think, you know, through the loss of confidence as an immigrant when I was 11 years old and through my parents' divorce, I think when people lose something and then they learn how to retrieve it or get it back, then they become a master at it. So I was a pretty okay, um, confident kid, you know, with a healthy self-esteem as a kid, but I didn't really know what the loss of self-esteem was like until immigration and my parents' divorce happened. So I had to get back to what I felt was my normal self, getting that confident self back. By teaching myself, okay, I need to do X, Y, and Z to feel good again. And this is what I'm willing to do um, by putting myself out there. So I would say when people lose things and they have to learn how to retrace their steps and gaining that thing back is how they become a master. And that's how I feel with um, having my own badassery.
0: How did you learn it right like I mean there's a million books right there's a million i think self help and personal development is like the biggest section in any bookstore, and it's becoming yeah. just it's just growing every single day yeah. but the thing that I'm present to is whether you go to a Tony Robbins event or you read these books is a lot of people read them and not and go to these amazing events and things don't actually change so how did you say you wanted change and then actually make it a reality
1: I love the Um, the self-improvement books and the seminars and all that. And I think the difference between people who do make and feel a change versus people who do not is taking actions. In your head, you might think, I'm going to do this and this and this to increase my confidence or to achieve certain goals. But until you actually pull the trigger, until till you actually take actions toward those goals and toward mastering your confidence, you're not going to change. So for me, how, how did I achieve this um, level of confidence or badass is, is by doing things that scare me, by uh, fulfilling the promise to myself, I'm going to do this, this thing that's on my list, no matter how scared I am, or no matter what judgment I might come across from uh, naysayers, or, or no matter what other people might say. So I think part of the key is definitely taking the actions and following through and fulfilling that promise to yourself that I think this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I have done it. So I think a big part of that is the follow through in the action taking.
0: I love that because if we can't keep promises to ourselves, like who can we keep promises to? Right. And I think
1: exactly.
0: It, it kills. And we all do it, right? You and I are, we're not perfect. We're human. We, we break promises to ourselves and, and there's nobody out there that probably doesn't. But I think it's, we do it all the time, right? We say like, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to work out or I'm going to eat healthy or I'm going to whatever it is. And then we break these little promises. And it's kind of like over time, it builds up to us not believing in ourselves because we've broken so many promises with ourselves over the years. Do you remember exactly. like, some of the, the actions you actually took when you were starting out? Like some of the things you made yourself do or practice?
1: Uh, yes. I, I would say, you know, writing a book is hard, let alone, you know, four or five and become pro- kind of prolific at it. But in terms of writing and publishing, you know, why do pe- some people t- take so long to put a book together. I mean, the knowledge, the stories in their head, right? But why after three, four, five years, they still don't have a book to show for it? Because they're not taking the actions to actually write a chapter a week or uh, trying to go out there and getting uh, attention of agents and publishers. They're not talking to the cover designers and the editors about improving their book. So, uh, what I do is that if I'm very, uh, set on publishing a book, whether it was my first book or my next book, I fulfill the promise to myself that today I'm going to produce a thousand words for this chapter. No matter how crappy it might sound at first, I'm going to produce a thousand words before I move on to the next thing I have to do today. So let's say a writer or anybody If you keep that promise to yourself and make that goal measurable and achievable and do it and don't let yourself get sidetracked or be distracted by other things until you finish that one task, then the likelihood of you finishing something you want to do will be maximized. So uh, for me, it's definitely chunking things down to measurable goals and, and doing it and not doing anything else until that thing is done.
0: I love that. And I love, I have a a saying that I got from one of my mentors, which is, you know, I'm sure he got it from somewhere too, which is like awareness without action, awareness and action equals results. But so many of us, like we go, we read these books, we see these things then we listen to a podcast like this and we go like, Oh my God. But then we don't take the action. So we don't get anywhere. Or we take action without awareness of who we're being about things or what we're doing. And then we don't get the results we want either. The thing that I got curious about, and when I was listening to you, is you said doing it and avoiding the distractions, which is mm-hmm. so relevant in the world we live in right now because distractions are everywhere. Like you can't get away from them. And I think with you know with my clients, it's one of the things that comes up um, where it's like, hey, we come up with a practice or a new thing that they're going to try to do or an action they're going to take, and usually the, some of the most common feedback is a circumstance happened. I got busy. My boss didn't let me this, this, you know, it's like, um, we could come from anywhere and, and, and look, we don't even have to have anyone else. We just have to have our cell phone and there's 501 distractions right there. How do you, how did you do it for you? But how do you also support other people or teach them how to avoid the thing that seems almost impossibly impossible to avoid, which is distraction.
1: Right. And like you said, it's the awareness. So if I'm aware what I usually get distracted by, then before I get started on my task, I have to shut that thing off. It's almost like a premeditated uh, strike first before the distraction gets you kind of thing. So if I know or somebody knows, oh, my, my weaknesses are Facebook and Instagram, my phone, that's going pinging me all these messages and uh, notifications all day long. Then I just need to shut off my phone before I start writing, so that I can't be distracted. So uh, the strategy is striking at that weakness, the tendency to be distracted, before it becomes a thing uh, to you. So I would say, if, if you know you're easily distracted by phones and emails and what what the TV shut it off, go to a quiet space, put your phone down, put it on silent before you sit down and start writing. Um, so a person needs to be allow themselves to become strong enough to nip that distraction in the bud before it becomes an overwhelming thing.
0: It's funny because it's like the simplest things, right? You didn't just say anything that was like rocket science or, or like revolutionary. You really said some really obvious things, but that we refuse or are unwilling to do. And I think that for me, as I'm listening to you, I think that's one of those big things that separates people from that achieve the things they want from the people that don't, is it's not any harder for you or me or anyone else in this world to turn our cell phone off. It's equally as hard for all of us, but one of us makes the choice to do it. And then it becomes easier each time, right? It's like practice, that muscle gets stronger. Exactly. Your, um, you know, you touched on it earlier about you know coming from being an immigrant, not speaking the language. You know, at eleven years old, which is a, probably a difficult age to come into a new space, right? Everyone's talking. It's not like you were two, um, and and then also you the the impact of having divorced parents, which is which is very common at, at, in the world we live in today. How did these things? Like, what did you really have to overcome? Like, tell me a little bit about it and like what you overcame from that experience as a child.
1: I think, you know, being an immigrant and and coming from divorced parents and where I came from Taiwan in the uh, late eighties, divorce was still kind of taboo for the Taiwanese society. I think out of 45 kids in my class in third grade, uh, when I was nine, uh, my parents divorced. Only three uh, kids had divorced parents. So it was still kind of um, unusual in that society uh, when my, my parents decided to um, uh, divorce. So coupling that with immigration, I think what I felt uh, worse about was, uh, was, this, was the feeling of being ostracized, of not fitting in. I didn't fit into the majority of my peers anymore because my parents didn't live together anymore. So I felt kind of ashamed and embarrassment. And then soon after, I had to suddenly learn a new language and culture and feeling again, I didn't fit in. I couldn't fit in because I didn't have the basic tool of communication. So that feeling of feel, of being ostracized and not fitting in anywhere was the biggest um thing that I felt as a kid the biggest weakness so learning how to overcome the not fitting in well you, you really have two choices you either come to terms with not fitting in a group and being okay being a loner or not not having th- big things in common with your peers or you try to overcome it by um by finding other ways to fit in I couldn't do anything about my parents divorce but I had to find other things that I could share in commonality with my friends, uh, such as our school activities and, and whatnot. And with not having the language, I had to do something about that because you know our new life was in California. I, I couldn't uh, continue not speaking the language. I had to become acculturated and learn English. So I, uh, I had to uh, really find the tool. So in terms of advice, You know, people could choose to either continue not fitting in, continue the status quo, and find ways to be okay with that, or they need to do something about it, as I had to, by learning the language and learning how to communicate with um, the people around me.
0: Do you think you were conscious of it, right? You were young. You were like a little kid when you were doing this. Do you think you were really aware of what you were doing at that age, or was it kind of something natural or innate about you just trying to figure it out?
1: I think I was very conscious of it because when you don't fit in, it's it's like an embarrassment that creeps up um, in your emotions and it shows up on your face. You might start uh, getting red in the face as I did because um, it was kind of embarrassing to start talking about my parents' separation, when friends ask, oh, how come they don't live together anymore? Or I remember really fibbing, um, pretending my way through the Pledge of Allegiance when I didn't speak a word of English. And here I am trying to, uh, you know, fib my way through these words I couldn't understand and couldn't pronounce right. And I could feel a couple other classmates staring at me. Uh, as I'm trying to pretend my way through the Pledge of Allegiance. So the embarrassment was uh, really magnified. So I was definitely conscious of, of what I needed to do to, to fit in. And my fibbing my way through the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, fitting in, uh, you know, as I acquired more language skills. But yeah, I remember that memory really well of being on the playground and, and not knowing what I was saying as I put my hand over the heart and looking at the flag. I didn't know what the hell I was saying. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely a conscious choice of trying to fit in.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, that's really cool. I like that you have an actual story that you like pinpoint how – how something as simple as saying the Pledge of Allegiance or anything is actually like uh, magnified so big when there's a a perceived, almost like a perceived, like there's something wrong with us, right? Because Mm -hmm. there was nothing wrong with you. Your parents were divorced that had nothing to do with you and you didn't speak the language, which had nothing to do with you. You learned, you knew a language everyone else didn't know, (laughs) you know, like, and um, I think something that we, that I find with my clients and I think applies to, everyone everywhere is we learn things as a kid right like you had this lesson of not fitting in you were ostracized not fitting in and then many of us we see this in our mind and then we make some meaning out of it right like there's probably something that you made meaningful about that about you you didn't belong and then i think the thing that that i find interesting is we grow up and we hold on to that idea And now we're grownups and we're still using this idea that we created when we were a little kid, which isn't actually true or relevant. It was made up from the start. Do you ever see it showing up now, even though you're empowered and you're powerful and you're a badass, that you still have moments where you feel that old story creeping in?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I see it even more pronounced Um, in my children, in in helping them navigate life. Because my my son is eight and my daughter's 11. So as a parent, you want them to fit in. You want them to have a a good social life and academic life and and following the structure of getting A's and B's on tests, of being invited to parties. So as a parent, I want them to fit in that way. But as an individual... I don't really care anymore if I seem like an oddball somewhere, if I I don't seem to be part of the mainstream anything. But I see it creeping up because I still want that for my children because I know that's going to help boost their self-esteem if they feel like they're fitting in. And my job as a parent for now while they're young is to help them find ways to fit in while still being okay as an individual, that they're not going to be exactly like their friends, but in terms of being invited somewhere or, or performing well in class, you know, you still want that for your children. Yeah. For myself, it's okay. If I have failures, I need to learn from my failures. Um, and it's harder definitely when you're a parent and you want your children to be successful and accepted. So I definitely feel a dichotomy happening, um, right now in my life. <laughs>
0: what's the this is great like because I think there's we all we talk as self-esteem like we talk about self-esteem as people in culture all the time and where everybody is like hey it's important to have good self-esteem how as a parent do you because you can't give them self-esteem it's not something like transactional that you're like here's broccoli now you have better self-esteem it's something that is (laughs) built up right like over time and how do you actually like as a parent what do you do that you think contributes to them building more, you know, more empowered self-esteem?
1: I show my kids new things that I'm trying all the time, whether it's a new hiking route or, you know, getting to know new people in hiking groups or parent groups or uh, riding groups that some people that I've never met before. So by showing my kids that I take risks um, that are reasonable for me all the time, that it's, it shows them that it's okay for them to take risks and that it's okay not to succeed at the risk-taking at your, uh, your first time or second time on, on the bat. So I think that's a healthy way of showing them, okay, mommy and to some extent daddy take risks and they may not succeed at first at whatever they're doing, but it's okay. And we help build them up by uh, complimenting them at their effort when they do something. So instead of saying, oh, you know, that drawing is so good, Jackson, we, we, may, we will let them know that we notice the effort and the time that they put into a project. Or we would say, wow, you try so hard uh, doing that move on the playground equipment 10 times. And I notice that every, with every subsequent one, you get a little higher or you get a little further with that jump that you're doing. So the strategy is that we share with them what we notice about their effort. And that helps build up their self-esteem. Because sometimes it's not about the result. It's not about, you know, being placing number one in a soccer tournament or a volleyball tournament. It's about... The fact that you tried really hard and that you use the strategies you learned in your coaching sessions and in school and to acknowledge their effort. And that really helps in uh, building their self-esteem so that they can uh, feel good enough about trying again and again.
0: I think that's such a powerful difference too between like children and adults, right? Like children, the results like so don't matter so much. And like results matter when you're an adult, right? If you tell me you're going to write a book and you never write a book, but you're trying really hard, who cares? It's kind of like yes. it flips. Like you, you set a kid up. I love that you talk about with them. What I heard was like you focus on the journey, the process and the energy involved versus the result. And it sets them up that then when they're an adult, they actually have the tools that then they can produce the results. And they're actually not afraid to like fail, there's, you know, you described it as calculated risk, which I think is, um, it's tough because everybody can calculate their own risk, and some people calculate very, very low risk and don't ever get off, the, get off, off like the 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 foundation and get onto the skinny branches of the tree. Yeah. How do you? For you, so like, how do you evaluate what's like a real risk, right? Like, writing a book maybe is a risk, maybe is not. Getting in front of a room full of people, you and I know we've spoken in rooms full of people. It's not as bad as people think it is. No one's going to shoot you if you don't give a good talk or come up and hit you (laughs) with a bat. It's kind of like you don't give a good talk and you learn a lesson and you probably give a better one the next time. But how do you so how do you decipher like, oh, this is a risk worth taking, even if I fail, versus this is a risk and it's not worth taking?
1: I think you would have to see what what is it that you're trying to do, and I, I'm pretty open to taking. Uh, risk even when you know it's it's really risque it you know I mean I went to Africa by myself to hike a mountain after six months of hiking experience so it's it's kind of um you know with some risks, I'm just really out there and with some others I'm more um conservative so how do I answer this hmm like how do I determine if a risk is worth
0: going out on a limb for right Yeah, well, well more so also how would you tell a room full of people right when you're speaking it's like everyone in that room is going to have different gradients or levels of risk tolerance and you or i as like maybe the coach can go come on some of these risks like you know every we have to be with everybody exactly where they are and if we don't try to stretch people they don't grow so how would you how do you support people to assess that for themselves because it's going to be different for everyone
1: I would say you have to imagine in your mind what's the best thing that could happen as a result of taking that risk. And can you visualize in your mind you taking that action in the moment? Can you imagine speaking to a room full of 100 people about this topic that you're excellent at? In fact, you're one of the masters. You know, can you imagine people coming up to you with a line out the door asking you to autograph their book and and telling you that what you said during the speech was so poignant and right on the money for them? You know, if you could imagine the best possible result after doing this, um, taking this risk, if you can visualize yourself in that moment of doing it, then it's probably a good risk to take. You know, I'm, I'm not a fan of snakes per se, but I can visualize myself holding a snake that's, that's not like a boa constrictor. You know, I can visualize myself being calm, holding it, and that, you know, as it's writhing around my wrist and arm and, you know, myself being calm and the snake being calm, and then I will gently hand it back to the zookeeper. So if I can imagine it, even though I'm not a fan of snakes, if I can imagine it, then I could probably take the risk and do it. I don't know if that helps answer the question, Alex.
0: (laughs) Well, I love that because I don't know if you've ever heard this. I remember this study when I was, that was done. This would have been like in the 90s, but I remember my mom sharing it with me. Uh, I was a baseball player and I, I played all sports, but that was like my main But one of the study that she read, they analyzed basketball players shooting free throws. And they took a certain amount of the basketball players and they had them just like practice shooting free throws and just doing it normal. And then they had another group before, like uh, basically just practice visualizing themselves shooting the same amount of free throws. No actual free throws being shot. And then a third group, which did half the time visualizing and half the time actually doing it. And the group that I think did the best was the group that did the visualization and the doing. And then the group that did second best was just the group that visualized and did no doing. Um, And the -hmm. group that did the worst was the group that did only the doing and none of the visualization. And and I'm remembering this as it just speaks to the power of our mind. You know, if you can see yourself doing something in your mind, then it gives you the Uh, The presence or the confidence or the wherewithal to actually say like I could do it even though you haven't done it yet That's really cool. Exactly.
1: It's like you're right. The mind is the most powerful Sentient thing we have and when we can put our mind in that space that we desire I think naturally the physiology will follow what the mind is visualizing So and again, it's a choice You know, do you want to visualize that great thing happening or do you not? That is in itself is a choice. And some people choose to visualize the good thing for themselves. And some people choose not to because for them, even the visualization, they can't fathom it. They can't fathom that becoming a reality. Therefore, they don't even try to imagine it. And that's a choice. So... Uh, you know, I'm sure part of the, your coaching thing is that it's, it's quite a task, quite a challenge to convince people that they can imagine the thing happening for them and this is how to do it. And some people will will kind of fight you against uh, even imagining and, and that they need to overcome
0: that. Yeah, it depends on the person, right? Some people, um, everybody's so different. It's, so, uh, it's one of the things I love about doing this podcast is, is getting to hear everybody's story. Because it's, I think that we think that we're like, it's this weird, it's a dichotomy because we think we're this so unique, right? We all think like people don't understand our story or, you know, I'm an immigrant, so nobody understands me or that's what makes me special or different. Whereas there's a lot of people that have an immigrant story that's disempowering. Now, the difference between maybe you and some of them is you actually made some choices that created the life you wanted. And they can do that too. And it's a choice. And, but we, it's like, we're so different yet. We're also similar. We all have the similar fears. We all have similar, similar self-doubt, uh, limiting beliefs. Um, and, and we all operate at our own pace, but yet what is there? Like three, I don't know how many billion people, 6 billion people on the planet there's somebody that's done. (laughs) Yeah. There's somebody that's probably done what you've done or overcome what you've overcome. And that doesn't mean that you have to, but it means that it's possible. I love hearing stories about them. Like the things that like your story in itself is like, man, if, if, if you can come to a country and not speak the language and find a way to grow up and write books and speak, it's like how many people out there don't have that and they're stopping themselves. It's just a reminder of like what's possible for me. It's really inspiring. Um, I want to talk about the fear and the risk and pulling the trigger anyway, because I know this is like a big thing and you're like, hey, you know, do what scares you and then pull the trigger anyway and go for it. How do we... Yes. There's so many times where fear actually keeps us safe, right? We don't want to get rid of fear. If we got rid of fear, we would just run out in the freeway and and that wouldn't work out so well for us. And we might jump out of a plane with no parachute and that wouldn't work out well for us. So fear, I, I say this a lot, like we're not supposed to kill fear. We're not supposed to get rid of it. Fear keeps us safe. And there's many a times where our fear is irrational and we get the choice to actually step through it. What's your kind of, I don't know, tell me about your philosophy on noticing what scares you, but in an empowered way and then moving through it.
1: I would say with, with everything that's um, scary, but I still want to do it, I ask myself, how much do I want to do this thing? How much of a priority is it for me to do this thing by a certain day? If it's a really high priority thing, then I would do all the homework under the sun to research and prepare myself for this goal, let's say hiking in Africa, right? So I did all the research you can imagine as everybody I knew that have gone there and taken the journey on Kilimanjaro and, and read thoroughly on all the websites pertaining to gear and equipment and high altitude sickness. And so if you really want to do it, you have to take the steps in doing your homework, because no one's gonna say, here, I'll keep you safe, just follow me. I mean, they could say that, but that would be dumb if you just follow them and not do <laughs> your own homework, right? So I would say, if you want something badly enough, you have to do the homework yourself to, to understand what is a calculated risk? What are you really getting yourself into? And then, just as importantly, take the precautions for this risk. So I, I knew I could possibly get sick on a mountain that's 19,000 feet high, so I had to get a prescription pill for uh, anti-altitude uh, nausea sickness in order to prepare myself. I had to um, have certain kind of gear to to be equipped on the mountain. And so that's all part of my taking precautions in order to take this hike. So. People, if people are really willing to take the risk and do the thing, A, they must do the research and the homework because no one else is going to do the homework for you. If they do, it still won't be you really knowing what you should know. And then, two, taking the necessary precautions before you pull the trigger. If you're literally pulling the trigger, you know, if I'm at a gun range, obviously. I should have a vest on, I, I should have my uh, safety goggles on, and I should keep people around me safe by having that divider and focusing on my target. So, you know, what are you going to do to take the precautions necessary in order to maximize the success of the risk that you're undertaking? So one is research and B is doing the precautions.
0: And then what is it that I know you, we've, we talked and you shared with me, you know, the reason why going after what scares you or doing what scares you is so important because the consequences regret. And I think I would agree with you that like, that's one of my, like, I don't want to be lying there at, at any point in my older age going, I wish I had done, or I wish I had tried, or I wish I had said, um, you know, I think I think something I've recently had this experience where when we're in relationships, you know, the game that people play that's so common is like they don't want to tell the somebody that they love them. They want somebody to say it first or what if they don't say it back? And I, and I recently thought like, man, I don't ever want to be the person who doesn't say I love you because I might not hear it back or they might not feel the same way. Like, who cares? Like, what do you like? Who cares that we would express ourselves in that way? Like, it's a gift to share that with somebody. Um, what is it about regret for you that has you so motivated? That kind of keeps you, you know, moving forward.
1: I've I've always usually tried to you know do the thing that I want to do. I, you know, uh, part of why. I can do like nine times, nine times out of 10, I do the things that I I achieve, the things I want to do is because I kind of have ADD that way is that when I want something, I just go and do it. It's it's like immediate. Right. And how I see my parents as they're raising me is that, you know, part of the Asian society, it's, it's very conservative. It's, it's like, do, do your job and, and keep your head buried down and minimize the risk. So I see that, and i did, I never felt at ease with that and how my parents um grew up and how they continue to uh live life is to keep themselves small, keep themselves buried, you know clock in clock out, you know earn earn your little money in a forty hour job just to be safe to to have no risk at all and i didn't i never came to terms with that. I felt like that was so not me because I wanted so much more in life. And I knew that involves taking risks and kind of going the opposite direction from what my parents did. So I would say, if you find yourself that you are more comfortable being that way, um, then, then you should do that, you know, Taking the calculated risks and doing the research for what you want to do, and for some people, their nature may be just simply play hey, everything safe. But I, I bet I'm willing to bet that it's always a little more fun when you're willing to do that plus one effort of pushing yourself out of the comfort zone. Just you know, ten percent, twenty percent more, and a little more more with subsequent efforts. That I think people will live a happier, more fulfilled lives if they're willing to uh, push their potential and see see what happens.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think sometimes we, it doesn't even have to be, you know, you said 10 or 20%. Sometimes it could be like 1%. Like, hey, what's 1% further than you would normally go? Because eventually those 1% will add up or you'll do 1% a lot of times and then you'll go, you know what? I have a little more confidence. I'm going to expand it. Yeah, we don't all have to, like, jump out of planes our first day or climb Mount Kilimanjaro after six months. That's so amazing that you did that. I think you were definitely the second person who's been on this podcast that has climbed that mountain. There might be more because I haven't asked everyone. Um, I have some questions for you Some Rapid Fires. What is your next, like, huge goal?
1: Well, my seventh book is going to be a collection of short stories that are mostly humorous. Um, I, and I model these stories. If I have several author uh, role models, one of them being Davis Sedaris. And I would love to reach his level of success of being backed by a New York uh, publisher, a big publisher and an agent and just travel around the world reading my stories out loud, entertaining people with these real life shenanigans that I've experienced. So that's my 2019 goal is to reach um, just a fraction of that success would be great because Davis stars is phenomenal. So funny Mm -hmm. and all his shows are always sold out and he's such a prolific, funny author. Um, So that's one of my 2019 goals. And um, in terms of physical, of feet. I, I, I love pushing myself, again, with the physical calculator risk. Um, there's a, a company in Washington State. Um, they've been around for 15, 20 years. They take people on these single-engine planes, 4,000 feet altitude in the air, and they strap you to the wing of that plane and let you walk on the wing as the plane is moving at 4,000 feet. So I'm going to do that next summer.
0: <laughs> Can you send me a link or something that sounds, I, I want to say I'll do that, but that's that's crazy. That's like, uh, I feel like that's you <laughs> like The Rock or Tom Cruise in like a Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> that's amazing.
1: Totally, totally Mission Impossible. So you have these that's two so cool. cable wires strapped to your torso and your waist. And you might, you know, the plane probably won't crash, but you might pass out because of the altitude and the thin air and just freaking scared. But mm-hmm. I, I think that it would give me such, just thinking about it, it gives me such a high. So Alex, I, I invite you to do that with me and all the listeners to come and check out. I definitely send you the link of that company. Let, so let's do that. Amazing. Let's make that happen next up. That is so
0: <laughs> amazing. Um I was going to say the next two questions were what still scares you and what's the ne- next risk you're going to take. But I think you just gave me the answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I don't know if anything scares me, really. I mean, um, you know, since 9-11, it's been on, on a lot of people's mind with, uh, you know, that terrorism could happen in the United States in such a drastic terrible scale that claims so many people's lives right so that's been on a lot of people's mind and it was definitely on my mind as well since 9-11 however it doesn't stop me and my family from traveling as much as we do because seeing the world and experiencing different culture and different ways of life and hearing a different language that is such a fulfilling feeling that we're willing to take the calculated risk of possible terrorist act happening anywhere in the world. But we can't stop ourselves from traveling and getting out of our well, getting out of our little well, in order to you know, have a connection with other cultures and other people. Um, so I would say that used to scare me the, that terrorism could happen here and anywhere. And for a little bit of while, you know, we would say, oh, let's not go to this European country. Let's not go to uh, this African country but I stopped myself from feeling that way um, because I know the reward of traveling is much greater than um, having to deal with the aftermath of any yeah. terrible act. Um, so, so that, that's something that used to scare me, but not anymore.
0: Rosani, how do people, uh, if people want to, you know, find you, contact you, um, you know, follow you on social media or anywhere, find one of your books, what's the best way to, uh, for them to, you know, track you down, you know, follow you essentially.
1: Yes. They could, um, find me on Instagram at Rosiannilu, R-O-S-E-A-N-N-E-Y-L-I-U. And under my uh, link tree bio has all the links to my books and my website. My website is rosiannilu.com. So I, I, const, I post when I'm going to show up at an event um, to, as an attendee or speak. Um, and all my books are on Amazon as well. Yeah. So they can find me on Instagram, my website, and on Amazon.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for, for being here. Um, I just, I want to acknowledge you. Thanks for your, your, your candor, your honesty, your vulnerability, um, sharing about your family, Uh, your story, your childhood, your parents, you really just like opened up and told us a lot about your private life and your world. So thanks for the courage and the vulnerability to do that. Um, I just want to acknowledge you just for being brave, you know, for having written all these books and putting yourself out there. And what's so cool is it's like the opposite of the thing that was the thing that stopped you, right? Like it was like language was your arch nemesis in a way and language has now become your you know your your greatest success story um so thanks for shining a light on what's possible if we're willing to put our mind and our action to it
1: thank you alex it's been great talking with you
0: yeah you're welcome thanks Thanks for listening to another episode of the Dream Mason podcast. Please subscribe to the Dream Mason podcast so you don't miss an episode. Share it with a friend and give us a review on iTunes. I am grateful to have had you here. If you want more, you can follow or reach out to me, Alex Terranova, on Instagram at inspirationalalex or at thedreammason.com or email me at alex at thedreammason.com. And remember, you are a dream mason, because your dreams don't build themselves. (laughs)